weekend, The Washington Post and CBS's 60 Minutes teamed up to publish an investigation about the negative influence that the pharmaceutical industry has had on America's opioid epidemic. The story takes a deep look at the way the drug industry and drug distributors first pumped huge numbers of opioids into communities and then worked with members of Congress to pass a law that would weaken the Drug Enforcement Administration, that's the DEA. The law makes it much harder for the DEA to enforce laws that stop these addictive drugs from reaching the black market. The story has had real-life consequences for some lawmakers, though we'll get into that later in this episode. But in the meantime, it's raised some immediate questions about what the president can do from here to combat our nation's opioid crisis. In response to the Washington Post and 60 Minutes investigation, the president said Monday, We're going to look into the report. We're going to take it very seriously. Because uh, we're going to have a major announcement probably next week on the drug crisis and on the opioid massive problem. Uh, And I want to get that absolutely right. This country, and frankly, the world, has a drug problem. The world has a drug problem. But we have it, and we're going to do something about it. So I'm going to have a major announcement on that problem next week. So that's the question we seek to answer this week. Can President Trump solve the opioid epidemic? How much power does the White House have to put a stop to a crisis that kills so many Americans each year? This is Can He Do That? a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in the show, we'll talk to an opioid policy expert about ways to combat this epidemic and what role the White House can play in that process. But first, we have investigative reporter Scott Hyam here on the show. Scott has spent more than a year uncovering this incredible investigation. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So how bad is this crisis? How many people die from opioid abuse each year? You know, it's terrible. It's the worst drug epidemic in U.S. history. And so, so far, we have about 200,000 people who have died of prescription drug overdoses in the United States in the past maybe 15, 17 years, which is three times as many people perished in the Vietnam War on the U.S. side. So that gives you a sense of the scale of what we're looking at. And, you know, the, the prescription opioid epidemic has now unleashed this monster, which is heroin and fentanyl. It's getting harder and harder to get oxycodone or oxycontin, hydrocodone on the streets. And so what users and dealers are now doing is turning to uh, heroin and fentanyl. The most popular um, version of oxycodone was a 30-milligram tablet. If you go to your dentist, you get a 5-milligram tablet if you have your wisdom teeth out or a root canal or whatever. So this is six times the strength of of what you would normally get. And those pills became so popular on the streets, they became known as 30s. They were 30 milligrams. Those pills now cost like 30 30 bucks, maybe a little bit more now, per pill, per high. And for $30, you can buy like a small bag of heroin and get like three highs out of that. So a lot of drug addicts are saying, you know, I'm done with Oxy. I'm just going to shoot heroin or snort it or do fentanyl. And so, and that's, now we're seeing the the overdose rate just really skyrocket because of that. Yeah, that's tremendous. So last year, you and reporter Lenny Bernstein, you guys discovered that the DEA enforcement against opioid distributors had slowed down, yet somehow at the same time, deaths from overdoses were still climbing. Let's start with one piece of the story, which is the drug distributor piece. So what exactly is a drug distributor in this case? 
So the, uh, the pharmaceutical supply chain is not very complicated. It begins with manufacturers at the very top of the, of the supply chain. And so who's the, an example of a manufacturer? Well, you know, Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Mallinckrodt, and there's a lot of companies that you've never heard of before. So the manufacturers get the raw material, they manufacture the pills, and then they send them to these distributors, which are like the wholesalers or the middlemen. And the distributors then distribute those drugs across the country to pharmacies, hospitals, pain clinics, etc. Got it. And all of that is part of the legal process of distributing drugs. Exactly. And it's tightly regulated because, you know, if there's any break in that chain, and that's when drugs start getting diverted out of that supply chain and they start going to the black market. So that's why the DEA tries to regulate it very closely. And it also relies upon these companies to regulate themselves. So if a distributor sees that there's a pharmacy in your community that one month is getting 10,000 doses of oxycodone and then the next month that pharmacy is ordering 50,000 doses, well, that's a suspicious order. It's not like suddenly you've got like a pain epidemic in this one pharmacy Mm -hmm. in this one community. So the distributor is supposed to notify the DEA, hey, we got a suspicious order, we're red flagging this and we're sending it to the DEA for your investigation. And that was not happening. And that's what the DEA was was finding all over the country. And that's why they started going after some of these distributors. So hypothetically, the distributor could make more money if they're distributing more pills, right? Exactly. And, and this is what the DEA was alleging, is that they were turning a blind eye to these suspicious orders because there was so much money to be made. So instead of reporting them, they would just let the, the shipments fly and uh, and not say a word to the federal government. So these cases were coming up often, distributors reporting these incidences, the DEA enforcing law against them. But then that seemed to slow down. What happened there? Well, the pharmaceutical industry got upset that they were being uh, singled out by the DEA, that the DEA was being very aggressive in their enforcement actions, and they started to push back. So they started pushing back with lobbyists. They started pushing back with campaign contributions. They began to recruit some of the best and brightest out of the DEA's Office of Diversion Control. It's a small division within DEA that does nothing but regulate the pharmaceutical industry. And one of the lawyers who left the DEA, a senior attorney within this division, then went over to the other side and helped craft this law that Tom Marino then introduced into the House of Representatives. So let's pivot to talk a little bit about this law. So while all of this was going on, while these cases seemed to be slowing at the DEA and enforcement of these drug distributors seemed to be slowing, Representative Tom Marino, he's a Republican from Pennsylvania, and Representative Marsha Blackburn, who's a Republican from Tennessee, they helped guide a piece of legislation that essentially made it even harder to act against these really big drug companies. What does that legislation do? Well, so the earlier versions were even worse than the one that passed. Um, The earlier versions would have created a criminal standard for the DEA to meet before they could go after these companies in civil cases. And so the DEA fought really hard against that, and they won. Then there was a leadership change at the DEA. There, There was a leadership change at the Justice Department. Eric Holder left and Loretta Lynch took over at the DEA. Michelle Lenhart left and Chuck Rosenberg took over. And so under this new leadership, there was this kind of reach out to the industry that the members of Congress have been calling for for years to work more collaboratively with the industry, to stop treating them like quote-unquote drug cartels. And ultimately, the DEA signed off on a piece of legislation that, according to the DEA's chief administrative law judge, really hampers their efforts to go after these drug companies because it raises the standard of proof for the DEA 
to such a height that they feel that they won't be able to meet it. So why did they agree to it? Well, they felt it was the least worst bill that they could get, that the, the other versions were worse, that having a criminal standard to go after some of these companies was something that they just could not tolerate. So they consented to this other version, and they proposed some of the language that's in, in the current bill. But if you talk to the DEA, you know, the, and they won't go on the record saying this, but on background they'll say that this is a bill that they did not want, they did not need, they didn't feel like it was necessary, but there was so much pressure being put on them by members of Congress that it was going to get passed with them or without them, and that they did the best that they could, but it still got passed nevertheless because there was so much pressure by key members of Congress with the backing of probably one of the most powerful lobbies in D.C. So the assumption is that they're receiving money from lobbyists from all of these major drug companies, correct? Correct, yes. Okay, and that has tremendous influence on members of Congress because why? Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, when they complain about Congress, they see things in terms of Democrats and Republicans, and that's really not the case anymore. What's happening on Capitol Hill now is that it's so expensive to run a campaign, and in the House, they're, they have to run every two years, so they're constantly raising money. The Senate campaigns are costing just tens upon tens of millions of dollars to run. And so these members need money to run, and they take money from a lot of people. And when you take money from people, they usually want something in return. And there are members of Congress who are considered to be kind of allies of the pharmaceutical industry and who carried their message that the DEA needed to stop cracking down on these drug companies and they needed to be more collaborative. And so this bill went up to the president and the president Obama at the time signed the bill, correct? Correct. So why why would he not push back against what he was reading? Well, I mean, if you believe the White House, they say that they relied upon the DEA and the Justice Department um, who said that they had no uh, objections to the signing of this bill. Why they said that is still a question that we want to get answered. Uh, mm -hmm. Chuck Rosenberg has refused to speak publicly about this. Loretta Lynch, who was the AG at the time, has refused to speak publicly about this. Sally Yates, who was the Deputy Attorney General, has refused to speak publicly about this. But Michael Botticelli, who was the head of the drug czar's office at the time, said that he was told by DEA and Justice that they had no problem with this. So this bill in and of itself did not cause the epidemic, but it potentially has exacerbated it. So one question is, can an administration do much to curtail the epidemic? Can they do things to exacerbate it? Like how much influence does an administration have on the opioid epidemic? Well, on something like this, I think they have, uh, they have a lot of influence. They have a lot of leadership, things they can bring to the table. So, you know, in, in this case, um, there have been efforts or at least requests to repeal this bill or rewrite it. And so some of those things are pending. Attorney General Jeff Sessions and his deputy attorney general said the other day that they're revisiting the law and they're taking a look at it and they're looking at it very seriously. Now, they can't change a law that Congress has passed, but they can certainly urge Congress to revisit it, the president could um, could call upon Congress to repeal this law. But again, it comes, it's, you know, the separation of powers. The, the White House cannot change a law that Congress has passed. The White House, of course, as Scott says, doesn't have the power to change laws that Congress has passed. 
But what can the White House do? How much of a role can an administration play in how we fight drug epidemics in this country? To help us answer the policy specifics of that question, we talked to Dr. Andrew Kolodny. He's the co-director of the Opioid Policy Research Collaborative at Brandeis University's Heller School. Here's Andrew. So for decades, perhaps longer, presidents have been fighting against drug epidemics of of various kinds in this country. And there's been varied and and controversial levels of success in fighting fighting drug epidemics. Our country now faces an opioid epidemic. What sets this crisis apart as a unique challenge for an administration today? That's a a good question. Um, I would describe our opioid crisis as the most urgent public health problem facing the country. And it's an extremely complex problem. There are no simple solutions for bringing it under control. Because this is a multifaceted problem, there are no single levers that any particular stakeholder can pull to address the problem. And one of the reasons this is a difficult problem for the federal government to tackle is that it requires a coordinated response from the many different federal agencies that have a piece of this problem. And if we're going to make real progress, all of these different agencies have to work together. And we haven't really seen that happen. If you look at the way the federal government responded to this problem During the Obama administration, what we saw on several occasions were federal agencies working at odds, sometimes delivering contradictory public statements on on the crisis. So what we really need is our federal agencies to work together with, with very clear direction. We haven't seen that happening yet. Now, that that brings up an interesting point. So this crisis grew under the age of Obama. And you've addressed this, but were there things that the administration specifically could have done to prevent this from escalating? You talk about a coordinated effort. Were there missed opportunities here to, to take advantage of that and to actually prevent it from the administration side? Yeah. So when President Obama came into office in 2008, we were already in the midst of our opioid addiction epidemic. The epidemic begins in 1996 and just gets worse every year since 1996. President Obama, in my opinion, really neglected the opioid crisis. Had President Obama responded more forcefully to the problem in 2008, I don't believe the epidemic would be as bad as it is today. There is quite a bit that could have been done. Our opioid crisis is an addiction epidemic, and it's been caused by the medical community over-prescribing, and as we overexpose the population to these highly addictive drugs, millions of Americans have become addicted. Had President Obama, for example, ensured that the FDA properly enforced the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, had in 2008 the FDA put an end to the aggressive marketing of opioids for conditions where they're not safe or effective, which is what their law requires is, had that law been properly enforced, I think we could have prevented hundreds of thousands of people from becoming addicted, and we may have been able to prevent thousands of lost lives from opioid overdoses. And are we seeing President Trump take these actions that you recommend now? We haven't seen anything from Trump, really, 
So President Trump has been speaking about it and has been at least calling public attention to the urgency of the problem, put together a commission. The commission didn't really tell us anything we didn't know about how or what we should be doing to, to bring the problem under control. What we haven't seen, though, is any real action. And it's very strange for a president to describe a problem as an emergency, which he, he did a few weeks ago, and then do nothing about it. If you're calling something an emergency, it means you should be taking urgent action to address it. We haven't seen any action. Yeah, so he's declared it on his own, independently said that this is an emergency, that his administration was going to formally declare it a state of emergency. However, he has not actually done that. The administration hasn't formally made it so. What happens? What's the power of a formal state of emergency? With the designation of the opioid crisis as a national emergency, there's quite a bit that could happen that would allow us to more effectively address the problem. For example, the designation would free up federal funding. It would make it easier to get the money to the states that would allow us to expand access to addiction treatment. The many agencies that have a piece of this problem through a designation would be able to immediately get more staff to tackle the issue. There are changes that could be made that might without this designation require legislation, but with this designation could be made through a regulatory change, for example, mandatory prescriber education, and might otherwise require an amendment to the Controlled Substances Act. We could even deploy the National Health Services Corps to the regions of the country hit hardest by the opioid crisis to see that there are health professionals available to treat opioid addiction. So on that note, on the campaign trail, Trump had said that tremendous drugs are pouring into the United States at levels that nobody has ever seen before. And he said that the wall will stop much of these drugs from pouring into the country and poisoning our youth. That was the language he used. Is this the case for opioids? Would a border wall solve this crisis? Even if a border wall was effective at keeping heroin and fentanyl from coming across the border, it wouldn't solve the the crisis. The crisis is an epidemic of opioid addiction. The way we bring it to an end is by accomplishing two things. We have to prevent more people from becoming opioid addicted. But then we have to see for the millions of people who are now addicted that effective treatment is easy to access. And, And that's the way we bring the epidemic to an end. There is a role for law enforcement. I don't know that a border wall is the way to do that. Uh, But there is a role for law enforcement. So Trump has also suggested that a way to fight this crisis in addition to the border wall is to boost law enforcement, as you've mentioned. And he basically has said that he's going to take that two-pronged approach. Do you think that that two-pronged approach, both the wall and law enforcement, is enough to really curtail this crisis? It's absolutely not enough. We will not get far if all we do is focus on a wall or law enforcement. We need to prevent people from getting addicted, and we need to treat people who are addicted if we want to see overdose deaths start to come down. There's a role for law enforcement. It makes it easier to get people engaged in treatment if they don't have ready access to drugs that, that they can overdose and die from. But you will not get far without a dramatic expansion 
in access to effective treatment for opioid addiction, and you won't get far until we start to see opioids prescribed much more cautiously. Yeah, I want to talk about something you mentioned earlier, which is about the FDA's ability to regulate how we market opioids in this country. So you mentioned that they haven't necessarily been proven safe and effective, that they didn't meet that law in order to be prescribed. Can you elaborate on that? Sure, sure. I I believe that had the FDA properly enforced the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act in the 90s when Purdue Pharma introduced OxyContin, I believe had they properly enforced the law, we wouldn't have an epidemic of opioid addiction today. If they were properly enforcing the law, they would have told Purdue, great, you have extended release oxycodone that you're going to call OxyContin, and we're going to allow you to promote use of that drug to the cancer doctors. We're going to allow you to send your sales force to the hospices and to promote use for palliative care because for palliative care, the benefits of a drug like OxyContin outweigh its risks. But we're not going to let you promote OxyContin for low back pain. We're not going to let you send your sales force to the family doctors, to the primary care doctors, to the dentist. Because the risks of using an extended-release opioid for these common problems outweigh the potential benefits. The drugs are too dangerous and may not even be effective if taken daily on a long-term basis. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Office of the National Drug Control Policy. So here's a government agency that is basically tasked with keeping this under control, helping prevent these sort of situations. If that office with a drug czar appointed by the president, is given the authority to do things like boost law enforcement, coordinate between HHS departments, make sure that FDA laws are properly upheld, all these things that you mentioned, could we see a significant dent? Could a president directly impact the opioid crisis in this country? Yes. Uh, There's a lot the president could do. There is a very important role that the federal government can play, something that Trump should be doing is seeking billions in funding from Congress to build out a treatment system in the state that doesn't exist yet. I would estimate that we need about $6 billion a year over the next 10 years, or $60 billion a commitment for, for a 10-year period, to make treatment much more accessible. And I'm not talking about putting patients into long-term rehab. What we need are outpatient programs in every county where someone who's opioid addicted can walk in and receive treatment that same day, regardless of their ability to pay for it. That's what we really need if we want to see death start to come down. And we need to see real leadership from the president to push for that. So, Scott... One thing that has happened since your report has come out is that Representative Tom Marino, who was in line to become Trump's drug czar, is no longer in line to become Trump's Trump's drug czar. Explain what happened there. So Tom Marino, during the course of our project, we were still reporting, was nominated by the president to be drug czar. And when our project published in The Washington Post and aired on 60 Minutes, there were a lot of questions about whether that nomination could survive 
you know, to have a drug czar who had supported the pharmaceutical industry and the drug industry and had carried a law through Congress that made it more difficult for the DEA to do its job, I think was a no-brainer. I think Mr. Marino saw that his nomination was dead in the water. There were a number of members of Congress who felt that they were hoodwinked by this law. Um, They admit that they should have read it closer, but that they relied upon you know, the word of people like Tom Marino that this was a, a good bill. I mean, it was called the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act. I mean, who would be against that? Mm-hmm. And so I think in the face of all that, Mr. Marino realized that his nomination wasn't going to go any further. So they just cut their losses. And in addition to that, Trump has also made some promises about what he's going to do about the opioid epidemic since your story has been reported. What are some of the things that he, he said he'll do now? Well, I mean, I think some of the big things, we'll have to wait to see what happens. I mean, next week he's rolling out a national strategy, and I don't think we really quite know what that's going to look like. So Mm -hmm. we're kind of staying tuned to see what happens there. This crisis, it really affects people in counties. It affects people all across the country, but it affects people in many counties who voted for Trump. It seems to me that if Trump took concrete steps to actually solve this crisis, it would pay off for him not only by saving lives, but also politically. Does that seem likely to you that if he could make a dent in this crisis, it would have positive political consequences for the president? You know, it, it's it's hard to know. I mean, you know, Donald Trump once said that I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and I'd still get elected. Mm-hmm. And we see that time and time and time again. But, you know, I, I see this. This is not like a political issue. Republicans are dying. Democrats are dying. People who don't care about politics are dying. This is... This is kind of an issue that the entire country should rally around regardless of political affiliation or who you voted for or didn't vote for. It has nothing to do with it. You know, this has no bounds. People are dying every day in vast numbers, and it's time for somebody to step up and make it stop. So speaking of stepping up and making it stop, that brings us to our final question, which is always the can he do that question. And this week it's can President Trump and really any president for that matter solve this opioid crisis? Well, not overnight, and it's going to take a long time. But you you do need uh, somebody on a bully pulpit like the president leading the charge, marshalling the troops, getting all the uh, DEA field offices together, getting all the U.S. attorneys together. Um, There's a huge federal apparatus at the president's disposal that he can rally around this. And the fentanyl's coming in from China. It's going through Mexico, and it's coming into the United States. So now we've got a whole other kind of opioid front in the opioid war opening up that they got to get on top of. Yeah, well, we shall see what happens. Hopefully there's some positive change down the road. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Allison. You guys can follow Scott Hyam on Twitter at... Scott Hyam, number one. <laughs> you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Michaels. another episode of Can He Do That? If you guys liked this, review it, share it, tell a friend. We totally appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to listen live, you should attend our live podcast taping of Can He Do That on November 7th at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. I'll be joined by guests legendary Bob Woodward, the 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold, and of course, national political correspondent Karen Tumulty. We'll go over everything from this past year that made you ask the question, wait, can he do that? Tickets are available at livenation.com. Plus, attendees will be eligible to receive a 30-day digital subscription to The Washington Post. Get your tickets now. Thanks so much. 
do that is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the incredibly well-intentioned Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.